In 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 30, we're going to read 10 verses of scripture. Kind of sets the stage for the prayer. Uh, it is, uh, I've entitled it, Elijah's Legendary Prayer. Somebody said, and one, one writer said it was the most famous prayer that Elijah ever prayed. And Elijah is a man who worked a lot of miracles. He prayed a lot of powerful prayers. But this was the most famous prayer that he ever prayed. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 30. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribe of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four bottles with water and pour them, or four barrels with water, and pour them on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time, and they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time, and they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar and filled, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal and let not one of them escape. And they took them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Lengthy reading of text, the the prayer was contained in two verses, verses 36 and 37. started with Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel and, and ended in the verse that says, Hear me, O Lord, and show these people that you are God and that you've turned their hearts back again. Would you pray with me, Lord Jesus, I love you. I thank you for the power of your word. I'm asking the next few moments, Lord, you let that word reach into our hearts and lives and impact us. Help it. In, in the course of just a few minutes this evening, let us find hope in the word of God that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, that you're always going to show up, that you're always going to do what you do, what only you can do, Lord, that when we stand with you, amen, we stand with the majority. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? Today, I don't know if you've paid any attention at all to the news or what's going on in our world. I'm sure that the circumstances of today are being addressed in pulpits all over this nation tonight because today the President of the United States recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Now, to put that in perspective, amen, I agree. To put that, that in perspective, 100 years ago, Jerusalem was the Jewish homeland was reestablished. 
70 years ago, Israel was officially declared to be a modern nation. 50 years ago, the, the Arabs rose up and one year after they were declared to be, or one year after they had, they had been fully uh, established and, and sought to destroy them and uh, fought the six-day war against them, and Israel won that war, miraculous. It's, there's some, Brother, Brother Larry and I have exchanged books on, there's some great reading about that, that war and the things that God did for the nation of Israel that were just absolutely miraculous. And in, in that war... The uh, Jews seized control of Jerusalem. They even seized control of the Temple Mountain. But there was a peace deal that was brokered after the fighting began to end. And in accordance with that peace deal, the city was divided along what is commonly called the Green Line. And it gets the name the Green Line because when they drew it on a the map, they used a green ink pen. And so they call it the Green Line. That Green Line separates the city of Jerusalem into two pieces. And that city remains divided to this day. The nation of Jordan controls the eastern half of the city. And Israel controls the western half of the city. And the Temple Mount lies just on the eastern side of the Green Line. In 1980, Israel declared that Jerusalem was its capital. That move was condemned by the United Nations, and the few nations that had their embassies in Jerusalem moved them to Tel Aviv in protest. So the U.S. Congress passed a law in 1995 declaring that the United States should respect Israel's choice of Jerusalem as its capital, and the law said we had to move our embassy to Jerusalem by 1999. However, the, the members of Congress put a caveat in their law that said that it was possible for a president to sign a six-month waiver to put the law for six months if there were national security issues concerned with the move. And so Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama all signed presidential waivers every six months of their tenure to push it off. And it's been in a perpetual state of the, the wishes of Congress, the law that was passed has been basically ignored under the auspice of national security. Now, for the first time ever, a sitting president of the United States of America is recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and has mandated that our embassy should be moved there in a timely manner, perhaps as in, in the next four years at the time frame they're using. He actually signed the six-month waiver himself today but this signals an end to that amen now this is a big deal it's a big deal for a lot of reasons it's a big deal for reasons that have nothing to do with elijah's legendary prayer but do tie into the lesson we're going to talk about tonight first of all it has prophetic overtones and and jesus spoke about a restoration of israel that would signal the coming of the lord that that he was soon to come amen and so the, the, he specifically said in one passage that the generation that saw that Israel reestablished would live to see the return of the Lord. Now, a biblical generation is 40 years. And no matter how you look at it, each of the events that I've mentioned 100 years ago, 70 years ago, 50 years ago, all occurred more than a generation ago, which tells me that that there is some future event 
that will trigger the fulfillment of that prophecy. And this could be that event. I don't think it is, but it could be. I really think that this is a precursor to that event. I really think that the stage is being set now for the Battle of Armageddon. The stage is being set now for the, the events of Revelation to unfold. Since Israel has been reestablished as a nation, it has never possessed the Temple Mount. That's the site of the old temple, Solomon's Temple, except for a brief period of time during the Six-Day War. And I really believe that Israel will never be fully restored. That generation will not be put in place until they possess that Temple Mount. But I do believe that when they possess that Temple Mount, you better get ready. Amen. Because Jesus is coming back. As a matter of fact, if, if this move by the President of the United States, I believe it puts us one step closer to that. As a matter of fact, immediately after his press conference today, the United Nations Secretary General held a press conference of his own, and he argued for a two-state solution where both the Palestinian state and the Jewish state would claim Jerusalem as their capitals, respectively. If that happens, and if a peace deal is struck that gives Israel rights to the Temple Mountain even on a part-time basis, if that peace deal contains any type of seven-year agreement, you better get ready. Katie, bar the door, amen, because we're entering into the time of prophetic fulfillment on the, at the moment that that happens. Everybody understands what I'm talking about, amen? But from a political standpoint, it would seem reasonable to allow a country to determine what city within their borders would be their capital? Every nation in the world has that right with the exception of one. Israel has been dictated to by the United Nations that they don't have that right. You'd expect that if the U.S. decided to make its capital somewhere other than Washington, D.C., say they, they chose Lake City, Arkansas to be the capital of the United States of America, you'd expect that the rest of the nations in the world would move their embassies to that city. There are currently 86 foreign embassies in Israel, and none of them are in Jerusalem. Now, what, that, what I'm building to is this move by the President of the United States puts him and those of us who agree with him in a minority. Amen? Those who agree that this is the right thing to do, a majority of the world disagrees with us. As a matter of fact, we're looking at now probably civil unrest in the Middle East. The, the Arabs are calling for three days of uh, protest as liable to be. Uh, it's only, it's anything could happen at this point. This is definitely a hot button issue. But truth in this case, right in this case, that which is good in this case is definitely in the minority. But that's not a new reality for Christians. As we survey the landscape of our world, it's easy to see that Bible-believing people with biblical morals and biblical integrity are in a minority in our world today. We're badly outnumbered in our culture. Amen? All you got to do is read the news. 
And it's every single day there's a new revelation of the moral decadence of this culture and this society. Amen. And we're definitely in the minority, but we have something working for us that is more powerful than the majority opinion that stands against us. And that's why tonight's prayer is important to us. It's important to us not so much because of the content of the prayer as much as it is about the circumstances of the prayer. You see, on Mount Carmel, there were 850 prophets of false religions and only one Elijah. Even the nation of Israel, the people who he was appealing to, that nation was caught between two decisions, not sure which side of the fence they were going to come down on. But at the end of the day, Elijah was the only prophet left standing. And 850 false prophets have been slain. Even though Elijah was in the minority, according to the numbers, being teamed up with God put him in the majority. Anybody heard that old song, said me and God? We make a majority. I used to have a friend that lived in Leechfield, and he used to be fond of saying, Bo Adams and I are the two richest people in Leechfield. Now, there's a trick to that. Bo Adams and anybody are the two richest people in, in Leechfield because Bo Adams was by far the richest person in town. But by linking the two together, all of a sudden the association makes me the richest person. It's kind of that way with God, amen? Sometimes we worry too much about numbers and we worry too much about how many people we have or where we stand and in, in, in all the standings of all that. But you can search the scripture from the table of contents to the maps in the back and you'll rarely find God in a majority. But from Revelation or Genesis to Revelation... He has always been and will always be the majority. Doesn't matter if he stands alone. It doesn't matter if he stands all by himself. It doesn't matter if he has one prophet facing down 850 prophets. When we stand with God, him and I, we're the majority. Amen. Him and I, we're the two richest folks in town. Amen. No matter what we stand against. So that's why this text is important to us. They it was a trying time in the history of Israel. They were a people who had gone through three years of drought, three years without a single drop of rain. It didn't, there weren't even dewfall in that three years. Three years with no water. Their fields were empty. Their farmhands were unemployed. And for the last three years, a severe famine and drought had hung over Israel. King Ahab had to deal daily with the very real problems that this caused in his kingdom. And one day Ahab called his chief of staff, Obadiah, uh, Obadiah, and tasked him to search for green grass so that the livestock would not all have to die. And Obadiah went one way to search for grass, and Ahab went the other way. And if we could have been there on that fateful day and followed Ahab, we would have heard him probably mumbling to himself about that troublemaker named Elijah. Uh, he was probably saying if Elijah hadn't opened his big mouth, 
we wouldn't be in this mess. Amen? It was a prophet of God that said, it's not going to rain. And, and now it's not rain. This is all his fault. Uh, and he's nowhere to be found. If I could just find that coward. Uh, uh, who, who stops the rain and then runs? Who runs from a fight? Uh, where is Elijah? Anyone? Anyway, if I ever see him again. Little did he know that he was going to get his wish that very day. While Ahab was looking high and low for pasture for the animals, here comes God's prophet, the man of God, Elijah. Ahab, seeing him, called out to him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? The man of God answered him, I've not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and has followed after Baal. Then Elijah issued a challenge that took a huge leap of faith. He commanded, he didn't ask, he commanded the most powerful man in the nation, King Ahab, to gather 450 prophets of Baal, well-trained, well-learned, educated men, and 400 prophets of the groves and bring them to the summit of Mount Carmel for a showdown. And believe it or not, the king did what he said. I mean, if a guy says it's not going to rain and it stops raining, you kind of pay attention to the words that come out of his mouth. Amen? And so those 850 prophets gathered on Mount Carmel, and then Elijah showed up. And, and all the people, people of Israel came out to see what might happen. They, they weren't sure which side they were going to come down on. They weren't sure which God they were going to follow. And then Elijah asked that the prophets of Baal would choose two bullock and one for their sacrifice and one for his sacrifice. And then he laid out the ground rules. The prophets of Baal would cut their bullock in pieces and lay it on the wood on their altar. But they could put no fire under the sacrifice. And then they would call on the name of their God. And after they had done this, Elijah would take the other bullock and cut it in pieces and lay it on the altar that he had repaired and put no fire under it and call on the name of his God. And Elijah laid the groundwork. He said, the God that answers by fire, let him be God. That's the challenge. Now, Bible scholars believe that Baal was also known as Apollo, the sun god. And so this is a confrontation where Elijah appears to be in over his head. Surely the sun god can send fire. Amen. Surely when one of his followers asks him to do that, he can do it. And doubtless, if 450 of his followers asked him to send fire, surely he would send fire. It looked like Elijah had gotten up against something he wasn't going to be able to overcome. But the prophets of Baal went first. They chose their bullock, and they prepared it, and they laid it on the wood, and they called on their God expecting to watch the fire fall and be shouting in victory very soon. But as they called on the name of their God, nothing happened. Surely if any God can answer by fire, the sun God had plenty of fire to send down, but there was no fire from heaven. They were surprised at their God's silence, but they were still 
uh, insistent, and they continued to call out, but they heard nothing from Baal. All the way from morning until noon, the scene was the same. Finally, they became desperate. They jumped up on the altar they had made, and, and they tried to show their sincerity to their God, hoping that somehow he would show up for them. But in, despite their desperation, the Scripture says in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 26, there was no voice nor any that answered. Then Elijah started to make fun of them. He started to mock their false god. Cry louder, he said. He's a god. Surely he can hear you. Maybe he's talking with somebody else. Maybe you need to, you know, leave a voicemail and see if he doesn't call you back. Or maybe he's out pursuing something. Or maybe he's on a journey. Or, or maybe your God's asleep. Maybe you need to yell a little louder and see if you can wake him up. This drove the prophets of Baal into fury, and they began to cut themselves until blood flowed and like water down their bodies. And, and, and self-mutilation is a, it's a form of pagan worship. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's a form of Eastern worship. I, in Taiwan, they had the priests that danced through the streets, blindfolded, guided by the devil's own hand. They can't see where they're going. Cutting themselves with swords and the sign of devotion to their gods. And all afternoon, the prophets of Baal cut themselves and cried out and waited for an answer from Baal. But no answer came. And finally, when it was time for the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah waited for the right moment. He waited for the biblically mandated time. And then it was his turn. Hundreds of disappointed, disillusioned, exhausted, and bleeding prophets gave up and sat down. And Elijah went to the old altar of the Lord that over the last few years had fallen into a state of disrepair. The children of Israel had neglected the altar of the Lord because they had worshipped these false gods. And the Bible said Elijah's first task was to rebuild that altar. He gathered 12 stones, one to represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel because Elijah understood this victory was not a victory for him alone. It was a victory for the entire nation of Israel. He was calling God's people back to God. It was a scene that was reminiscent of the day that Joshua called the children of Israel to bring a stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel out of the middle of the River Jordan and put them river-smooth stones on the banks of that river and build an altar there that for generations people would walk by and say, how did these smooth stones get out of the river? And they could say, this is where our God parted the Red Sea. This is where he brought us over into the Promised Land. So with those Twelve stones, Elijah is making that connection to the promises of God to Israel. And he gathered them together and he rebuilt the altar. Then he did something strange. He dug a trench surrounding the altar. You've heard the story before, but this had to spark questions from the prophets and the bystanders. What's he doing? Why is he digging a trench? The, 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 the challenge has to do with fire from heaven. Then Elijah took his bullock, he cut it in pieces, he laid it on the wood on the altar, and then he asked them to bring barrels of water, four barrels of water, and pour it. Listen to how he says it. Pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. 
Yeah, I've read that a million times. I never really thought about it. But before Elijah gets done, before he's even started praying, he's already declared this is a burnt offering. You may be looking at it and you're seeing flesh and blood that's not touched by fire yet, but go ahead and get your water and put it on the burnt offering because when God gets done, this thing's going to be burnt up. Amen? Now, the question had to come up, why water and why now? After all, this three-year famine, this three-year drought, water comes at a premium price, and now he's asking them to gather water and essentially waste it by pouring it on a sacrifice. And, and there's surely not a good source for water. After all, uh, the land has been without water for three years. Some scholars have proposed that maybe they trekked all the way to the Mediterranean Sea to get their water for that day. But if they did, it was a long journey. And whenever they finally got back with the water and they poured it on the sacrifice, that old man of God said, good, go get another four barrels. And they sent them back two times so that there was a total of 12 barrels of water poured over the sacrifice and into the trenches. Perhaps at that point, one of the servants looks over at the old prophet and says, how in the world do you expect to set a soaked sacrifice on fire? And I can just imagine Elijah smiling because he understands he doesn't expect to do it. He expects God to do it. Amen. Elijah can't, but God can. And no amount of impossibility is going to change that. You can get it as wet as you want to get it. It's not going to change what God can do. And so at the time of the evening sacrifice... Elijah lifted his voice and he prayed. Simple prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I've done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their hearts back again. It was a simple prayer, but it was filled with faith. It stood in stark contrast to the antics of the prophets. He didn't jump on the altar. He didn't cut himself with a knife. He simply prayed to God out of faith. He simply lifted his voice to heaven and asked God to move. Sometimes we think spiritual authority comes with volume, with you know, very hyper actions. Or sometimes we fall in the same uh, problem that the prophets of Baal fell into. We try to make up for uh, what not feeling an anointing by acting like we're anointed, you know, like the, they did. The old man of God doesn't have to do any of that. He just lifts his voice to heaven. Says, God, would you answer by fire? And guess what? God answered. The scripture is succinct, but the scene must have been mesmerizing. The heavens opened and fire fell from the sky. This is important because if the fire had burst from the altar... Someone might accuse him of pulling some kind of parlor trick. Maybe he had hidden something under the wood that caused it to combust at that particular time. But with the fire falling from heaven, no one could deny that this was the work of God. And God sent a fire that was so fierce that it burned up not only the sacrifice, but also the 12 stones on the altar, the dust underneath the altar, and licked up all the water out of the trench. All 12 barrels of water were consumed by the fire. 
There was absolutely no question. God sent the fire. And Elijah knew it. The prophets of Baal knew it. The children of Israel knew it. Everyone on top of that mountain understood that God answered the prayer of his man, even though he was in a minority. Amen? So the people fell on their faces. They began to worship and repent. Cried out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. See, the showdown that happens on Mount Carmel is a fight of faith. Israel wavered between two opinions, not knowing if they were going to follow God, if they were going to follow these false gods that had been introduced into the culture, not, not being able to make a sound decision on who was worthy of their worship. Over the last several years, Israel had turned their devotion away from God and towards Baal, but when it was God, not Baal, who answered by fire, he reintroduced himself to his people as the one true God who was worthy of all worship, and they fell on their face and began to worship him. But Elijah's work was not yet finished. There were still those 850 bleeding, yet still breathing prophets who had helped turn Israel's heart away from God. And Elijah understood that if they survived, they might once again turn Israel's heart away from God. So it was not enough just to turn back to God in the middle of this dire circumstance, but Elijah needed to rid Israel of those that were leading them into this kind of worship. So while those old prophets of Baal were still awestruck at the impotence of their God and the omnipotence of Elijah's God, Elijah called for those around him to seize them. He said, don't let a single one escape. The crowd surrounded and seized the prophets of Baal. And the Bible tells us Elijah marched them down to the brook Kishon, and he slew them there. I can just imagine the old man of God. It was a bloody job, 850 prophets of Baal. But I remember a king who was commanded to kill everybody and refused to do so and answered for it. And I'm sure Elijah knew too. And he slaughtered all 850 of those prophets. At first glance, you know, in our our culture today, uh, we're very permissive and very tolerant, and it seems like Elijah's being a bit extreme here. But God understands human nature, and Elijah understood human nature. And Elijah knew Israel's history well enough to understand that he had seen them seesaw between serving God and serving false gods. And and if he didn't rid Israel of the idolatrous influences that were among them, if he didn't cut them off from the things that were leading them astray, then the false prophets would rise up and carry them back into the captivity of sin. So the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves, those people had infected Israel like a cancer. And it cost countless Israelites their faith and cost some of them their lives. And so he said, I've got to cut it off. I've got to totally remove it. I mean, if you go to the doctor and they say you've got a tumor or a cancer and it's operable at all, they're, going to, they're not going to say we're just going to take some of it out. They're going to say we're going to get all of it. We're going to get as much of it as we can. We're going to get, why? Because if you, don't, if you leave it in there, it's going to infect the rest of the body. Amen? That principle is still true today. When you come to the Lord... 
you have to cut yourself off from some things. Amen? There's some things that uh, you knew, truly need to put out of your life. And I use this example often because it's one that's easy to, to bring up. But if you were an alcoholic and God delivers you from that bondage, there's a part of your life that has to die. Amen? You don't hang out in bars anymore. You don't run with the same crowd anymore. And you certainly don't go to the package store on Friday night. Amen? Because you have to cut yourself off from those things. Because if you don't, then you set yourself up for failure. You go out and you can, you can buy your six-pack and you can sit it in the refrigerator and tell yourself, I'm just going to exercise my self-discipline and I'm going I'm uh, you know, to be better than that. But if you put yourself in that situation, you set yourself up to fail. Amen? Now, we all understand that drug addict's got to break his connection from drugs. He's got to break his connection from his friends. He's got to break his connection from uh, often all of his entire uh, circle of acquaintances if he's ever going to break free from his drug addiction. You understand that? But then we, we think we can break free from sin but still keep little pieces of it in our life. We think we can break free from sin and and still have little portions of our self that we reserve for ourselves. And what Elijah was showing us is you can't do that. It's got to all die. Amen? It's got to all die. He was removing the obstacles, cutting off the things that would have held Israel back, would have kept them from serving God, would have ultimately brought them into bondage. So when we... Look at the situation. I know I'm covering a, a broad Sunday school story. Some of you have heard this a million times. And I probably don't have any kind of a new angle on it. I probably don't have any great new revelation or insight into it. But I see some parallels between our culture and Elijah's culture. And I see some parallels between that lonely man of God on that mountain named Carmel and the church in the world today. You see, Elijah lived in a decadent culture without the moral mooring of the Ten Commandments and Israel had forsaken those directions of God and was left to live according to their own lust and in the middle of an immodest culture and an immoral culture and a culture that was embracing all kinds of hedonism and paganism amen there was a man of God uh, who prayed to God and God heard his prayer and he demonstrated himself to the point of changing the heart of a nation we too live in a decadent culture People often live according to their lust rather than according to the word and the will of God. But this story tells us that even in this culture, we can take great comfort in knowing God heard and answered Elijah's prayer. And if a church will rise up uh, and lift its voice to heaven, uh, God will show up uh, and show that he is who he is. Amen. I can't call the heart of this nation back to God. You can't call the heart of this nation back to God. But God can do what only God can do. And he can change the heart of a nation. Elijah lived among apostasy. God had called Israel to be his people. 
He had rescued Israel out of the furnace of Egyptian bondage, and he kept them for 40 years through the wilderness, delivered them to their promised land. He gave them victory after victory after victory as they possessed the land of promise. He'd given them one prophet after another prophet to prophesy of his love and his plan for their lives. Yet they turned their backs on him, and they turned their hearts towards other gods which were not gods at all. Neither Baal or any other god that they worshipped or followed ever answered one prayer, ever worked one miracle, ever delivered them from one thing. But the Israelites still worshipped them and pledged their devotion to them. And God would have been justified to shut his ears to their plight, to, to ignore their situation and let them go into the judgment that was coming. But he instead heard the prayer of a man of God who stood between a lost world uh, and heaven uh, and brought the two together. That tells us uh, that even though we live in an apostate culture, even though people in our world today worship at the altars of Baal. They worship at the altars of self and success and fame and power and materialism and lust and witchcraft and, and all kinds of things. The list goes on and on and on. But if men of God and women of God uh, will allow God to use them in prayer, it can make a difference in this world in which we live. Many see the concept of only one God is being bigoted and narrow-minded. They want a, a culture, a religious culture that embraces all religions. Co-equal is the, the code word. But man's opinion neither changes God's nature, his identity, or the way we're called to worship him. And he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You serve him and him only do you serve. Amen. God still calls for our undivided worship and thankfully he still answers our prayers. Elijah was public enemy number one. There was a standing order from the king to take his life on sight. He was not only in the minority, but he was in the crosshairs. It was so bad that at one point Elijah prayed and, and told the Lord that he was the only one left in all of Israel that was serving God. Now we know the Lord told him, I've got prophets, I've got people you don't even know about. Amen. But the, the point is that even with so much stacked against him, even with the, all the force of government turned against him, even with all the culture turned against him, even when he's got a, hey, listen, he's living. First of all, God tells him, go to the brook, and, and the crows, the ravens will bring you your food, and you'll drink the water from the brook. And then eventually the famine dries up the brook, and he says, go to a little lady. I prepared a little lady with a barrel of meal and a cruise of oil, and go there, and God's going to make a way to provide for you. But he has to hide. He has to be in hiding. This has to be a secret route and he has to stay indoors in the daylight because if anybody sees the prophet, they're going to tell the king the man that caused all this. Well, they don't understand. The world doesn't understand the church today. They think that it's judgmental. It's condemning. What they don't understand is it's compassionate and it's caring because there's a real place called hell. There's a real thing called judgment. And there's only one way. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
and no man comes to the Father but by me. When Elijah had so many things stacked against him, he prayed, and God answered his prayer. That should bring hope to the church in any generation, in any circumstance, in any situation. There will always be adversity. There will always be trouble. You'll always find yourself in the devil's crosshairs. But among the unpaid bills and the bad diagnosis from the doctor and the job layoffs and the funeral plans and the car accidents and the broken hearts, God still hears and answers our prayers. He still honors the fact that we are his people. Elijah's showdown on Mount Carmel gives every one of us hope. We have hope that God doesn't need a majority to be the majority. Elijah's outnumbered 850 to 1. And when he called for the people to decide between God and Baal, they fell silent. They didn't know how to choose. But Elijah pressed on because he understood. Even if it's just me and you, God, I'm going to keep the light on because they're coming. I'm going to keep the light on. I'm going to keep standing where I'm supposed to stand and saying what I'm supposed to say and doing what you've called me to do. I can't see the revival yet. I can't see the breakthrough yet. I can't see it with my eyes. Amen. They turned their back on me, but I'm going to keep standing here and I'm going to keep doing what you told me to do because sooner or later it's coming. Amen. The story teaches us that God will stand with us when we stand for him. Elijah took a bold and faith-filled stand for God. And God stood with Elijah in a bold, miraculous demonstration of his power. Every time we stand for God in this world, God's going to stand with us. Amen. As long as we keep those doors open and keep these lights on, as long as we keep a a lighthouse in the city of Lake City, God's going to be with us. Amen. We'll go through some lean times. We're going to go through some difficult moments. There's going to be some ups and some downs, but you better write it down, my friend. God hasn't forsaken his church. Amen. This is his bride. This is the love of his life, the apple of his eye. This is his church, and he didn't give his life's blood on Calvary. He didn't pour out his whole being uh, on an old rugged cross uh, so his bride could be abused. Every time that we stand up against this world, God's going to stand with us. He may not always deliver us from persecution or answer according to our wishes, but he'll always be with us, and he'll always answer according to his wisdom. And his wisdom is more important than our wishes. God may not always do what we want, but you can count on it. God will always do what is right. Amen. I'm closing, but I want to circle back around to Jerusalem one more time. This is why it's a good thing that the United States would stand with Israel. Because though we may be in a minority... And I did listen to Irvin Baxter's broadcast today because I was curious. And in his his broadcast, he he's basically saying we're setting the stage right here, right now for Armageddon. We're setting the stage for when Israel and possibly the United States stand against the entire world. And there may be a place right now where 
the United Nations Security Council stands against us, where the rest of the world's governments stand against us, where powers and principalities and, and all those things that rule in this world stand against us. But if Israel, if, if the United States stands with Israel, God said, whoever blesses you, how bless. And whoever curses you, how curse. It's okay if we're in a minority because with the blessings of God, this nation doesn't deserve God's blessing, but God's never given his blessings of merit and favor in what was deserved. He's honored this country because this country stood on biblical principles for years, has backed the nation of Israel for years. I'm not trying to be political, but I, I believe maybe it's time for us spiritually to make the same kind of bold declaration of faith. I, you don't have to like Donald Trump. He's a despicable individual as a human. But he's in this office for a reason. And the choice and the decision he made today was bold, unpopular, but I believe thoroughly in the will of God. You say, oh, well, he's a wicked man. God uses wicked men. God raises up kings in Assyria who are vile and makes them do his will. So I believe this evening maybe it's time for the church to make a bold declaration of faith. Maybe it's time to shake off the status quo and ignore what others may say and stand boldly with God and just believe for revival, believe for an outpouring. Maybe it's time to intercede for your, your workplace. Maybe it's time to intercede for your family. Maybe it's time to intercede for your city. Amen. I, I believe it's time to make a bold stand for God because if God is for us, none can stand against us. Would you stand with me? The importance of Elijah's prayer is not so much the content as it is the situation. He, it was a hopeless, dire circumstance. But prayer changed everything. I believe in the power of prayer. I don't believe fire falls from heaven just because he prepares an altar. I don't believe fire falls from heaven just because he cuts the sacrifice in the right way. I don't believe fire falls from heaven just because he does it all at the right time. I believe fire falls from heaven because he prays. All of the rest of that is essential, but he prays. There's power in prayer. Would you pray with me, Lord?